0: Turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. This is one that you probably haven't heard preached through too much in church. I have never heard it preached through, uh, the book of Nahum, but Lord willing, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get started in it today. So while you're turning there, it's right after Micah in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar. While you're turning there, I will pray. Father, I thank you, God, again for this gathering. I thank you for our musicians and the wonderful blessings you've given us with singers and people to lead us in song. I thank you for Blake's message this morning and how, Lord, we need to learn to be content better. We need to learn to trust you better and um, to accept how you answer our prayers, God, and I pray that you would do that this morning as we study your word, as we get into this the, this prophecy, that you would help us to just know you better and that you would help us to know how to conform our lives to you and that you would conform our will to yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so the book of Nahum, I'm going to be kind of in teacher mode here at the first a little bit to kind of go through the background and some of what's going on with Nahum. It's important, we teach this in, uh, in hermeneutics, right? And if you don't know, hermeneutics is, is how you interpret the Bible, how you understand the Word of God, and it's important, context is king. We say it, context, context, context. You can't take a verse out of its context. You have to keep it within what it's the, the entire message of where it is. But it's also important to understand historical context. What is going on? Where is this place? Why is this prophecy going forward? When Paul wrote the letters to the Corinthians, it's important to understand a little bit about Corinth, right? When Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, it's important to understand what was going on in Galatia. Right, And we can get that from other places in the Bible and from history. And so I'm going to give you some background to what's going on with this prophecy of Nahum. So the book of Nahum is actually like a sequel to the book of Jonah. One that most of us are probably much more familiar with, the book of Jonah especially. Um, it's in most of your Bible school books, you know, your your children's books, because it's a fanatical story where Jonah gets swallowed by the fish, right? Big whale or fish or whatever it was, and and he gets coughed up on land. Well, this is a sequel. So at the end of Jonah, you can picture the little deal that comes across there says 100 years later, or roughly 100 years later, we have the book of Nahum and what's going to happen. So if you remember with Jonah, and Randy went through Jonah not very long ago on Wednesday nights, but if you remember with Jonah, he was called to go preach to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites, or the city of Nineveh, was inhabited by Assyrians. And if you remember, Jonah didn't want to go. He ran the other way, and I remember as a kid not understanding why, you just thought, well, Jonah's just disobeying, he's just running the other way, and even as adults, when you read through the book, sometimes it's hard to really understand why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, but if you get a little bit of the historical context of the Assyrians, it makes much more sense to us, okay, And we're gonna we're gonna get into that a little bit more. So don't be too judgmental on Jonah, because I have a feeling many of us would have been the exact same way. Um, But we're gonna talk a little more in a little bit about what the Assyrians were like. But so Jonah runs the other way. Of course, God sends the storm, and the the boat that he's on going the opposite way of Nineveh was going to perish, basically. This storm was so bad, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And Jonah says, if you throw me overboard, it'll stop. And so they did. They threw him overboard. The storm stopped. So Jonah was basically thinking he was probably committing suicide. But God had other plans, and the big fish came and swallowed him. Of course, he was in there three days, and then he was copped up on land, and he went to Nineveh and he preached to them. And when he did, he, they received the truth. They repented and they turned to God. And that was the reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because he knew that God was a merciful God and he didn't like those people. He did not like the Assyrians. He didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them under judgment. And you'll see why in a little bit when I get into a little bit more like what they were like. But anyway, he goes and he preaches to them. They receive the gospel. They repent and turn to God. And Nineveh, for the time being, the city, which is the capital of Assyria, was saved. The the city itself. There was no judgment passed down on the city as it was. Um, so now fast forward roughly a hundred years and we get to the book of Nahum. Jonah has now passed on. He is with the Lord and just about, I think, I mean, I don't know that anybody would have lived that long. If anybody did, it was, they were very young when Jonah was there. So pretty much you're in, you've, you've, everybody's died. That was part of that, um, original repentance of Nineveh. And remember this, this this kind of made me think of this. In Judges 2, verse 10, it says, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. We are always one generation away from atheism. Your children, believers, Christians, your children... ...are not born Christians. They have to be taught. They have to hear the gospel preached... ...and the Holy Spirit and God has to work on their hearts... ...and they have to be saved. We are one generation away from what happened to Nineveh. Always. So we have to be very diligent in teaching our children. We have to be very diligent in preaching the gospel... ...to those who are lost so that they can be saved... Well, that didn't happen in Nineveh. So we are now to that to this point. Now, let's talk about the author a little bit, Nahum. And it will be a little bit because there's not very much known about Nahum. There's just, there's just not. The only, this is the only mention of him in Scripture is actually in verse 1 um, in this book. And it says, well, let me just read verse 1. It says, the Burden Against Nineveh, the Book of the Vision of Nahum, the Elkashite, And that's it. That's basically what we know of Nahum. That and that he pins or writes this vision. Um, it says he's an Elkashite, which is talking about a town or a city called Elkosh. But we don't really know exactly where that is. There's about three ideas of what that could be. One is that it was a town in actually in Assyria, an Assyrian city called Al-Kush, which if that was true, that would mean that Nahum was probably taken as a young child when they they would go in and raid cities because Nahum was a Jew or an Israelite. They would raid cities and they took people out and made them basically slaves, kind of like what happened with Daniel or with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken out of Israel and made slaves for Nebuchadnezzar. That could be possible. There was also a town in the northern kingdom of Israel. It actually later changed its name to Capernaum, which you've probably heard of Capernaum. That was in Jesus' time around the Galilee area. Uh, But we don't know. And then the third option, and this one's the one that some of the, I don't know, more... Uh, credible scholars lean towards, but they don't really have a whole lot of basis in it. But there's a, there was a town in the southern kingdom that is relatively unknown, and a lot of people think that that's where Nahum actually came from. It doesn't really affect the meaning of the message at all, so we'll just go with, he, we know he was from a town called Elkosh, and he wasn't an Israelite. The time frame of the book is somewhere between 663 BC and 612 BC. And we know that because in chapter 3, it's mentioned that Noaman or Thebes had already fallen. So we know that it happened, and we know in history that that happened at 663 BC. And then we know that Nahum is, this is written sometime before Nineveh falls, which Nineveh actually fell right around 612 B.C. I, I personally think it was probably really close. By reading Just when you read the, the text, you'll realize I don't think this is very far away. When he's given this warning about what's about to happen, it's, it's close. You can just tell by the way that it's written. So that's the time frame. Um, and then Nineveh, the city... Now, this is a little more important. This is what we want to understand before we get started. Uh, So when Jonah preached to Nineveh and they repented, it put God's wrath on hold for a time. And we're going to learn more about kind of how that works. But this, this did not last. So by the time Nahum wrote this prophecy, they had turned again totally evil and totally against God. It was the capital city of Assyria, and it was an extremely large city. For the ancient times, when you read Jonah, it said that it was, the population was 120,000 people. That is, what, about four times the size of Ada, population wise? For those times, that was incredibly large. I mean, that's one, that was probably the largest city at the time, in history at that time. So very, very large. That many people, is incredible. Um, and probably it had grown in the hundred years since Jonah, right? Well, there was prosperity because God's grace was on them, so they probably grew through that time. The Assyrians were in absolute control, so the capital of the most powerful country in the world generally tends to grow. So we don't, we don't know how big it was, but it was very, very large. And it was also very, very wicked, extremely wicked. They had adopted many of the false gods of the Babylonians. So there's a few of those I'll mention. Shamash, the sun god, Sin, the moon god, and Ishtar. You may have heard of Ishtar, uh, dealing with her in Corinthians and Corinth and the temple of Diana and all those things. Ishtar was the goddess of fertility. So anybody that worshipped those gods... Um, followed into some extremely pagan practices. And so when Ishtar was involved, the goddess of fertility, there was great heights of sexual immorality that usually followed along with that because that's what they taught. But the most telling one was not adopted from Babylonians. This was their own creation of a false god, and it was called Asher. And he was the god of war. And they were an extremely warlike people. And this is where, this is, when you start to see these things, I think you can start to understand why Jonah didn't want repentance. He wanted vengeance. And it's, and it's understandable. So a few of the things that they would do, and I'll try not to get too graphic because it, it can be rather heavy, but one thing they would do was called impalement. You think, okay, well, people were impaling people all the time back then in this ancient world. No, they created a torture method of impalement. They would actually take a sharp stick, tie the victim on it where it would be shoved, where it would go right up under their ribs, and just hang them on it so that very slowly over time their own weight would eventually force the stake up under their ribs and through the lungs and heart. Wow. They also did a thing called flaying. And this is well documented in history in some of the palaces that this stuff was is on walls and tablets and things like that. And that's where they would actually skin, pull strips of skin off of their victims, off of their enemies, keeping them alive. So they would strip it and cut strips of skin off of their back, legs, whatever, peel it off and put it on these tablets to be displayed so that everybody would see their power. I mean, you can imagine the pain. Beheading was quite common. They loved to behead people, but they also loved to put those on display. They would build them into pyramids out in the public where people could see all the heads, or they would hang them from trees like decorations. And the list goes on. The list goes on. But they did all of this, and it was a psychological warfare Um, That they were doing, they wanted absolute dominance and control. Now it's reported too, if you read the history, there was many of their people, their warriors and things like that, that suffered greatly because of these things that they did. They didn't understand a lot of the psychological problems like we do now that come along with this, but it actually caused their own people to suffer mentally, as you can imagine. But the people that saw it would fear the Assyrians so much that if they heard their coming, immediate surrender. We're not going to try to fight. We're going to bow. When you come, our city is now yours. Our country is now yours. And so the Assyrians had tremendous power. And they had done this in Israel. They had done this to Jonah's people, right? So when you hear that, if, if it was your Mom or dad or children or something like that, or, or just somebody that you knew, friends, that had had something like that done to it, you would understand. I mean, you, you get it, right? I don't want them, I don't want mercy for them. I want justice, right? Well, God granted them mercy for a hundred years, but now we're going to get to Nahum 1 and we're going to look at actual judgment. So, Let's go there. Nahum 1, one, The Burden Against Nineveh. The Burden Against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So the, Nahum is, is unique, this book, in that this is the only book in which the entirety of the book is characterized as a vision real, revealed by God. Uh, three other prophetic books refer to the vision shown to them. All the other prophetic books actually start with an explicit indicator that their message is the word of the Lord. But this is the only one that the entire, the entire book, which it's not real long. It's just a couple of pages, right? Three chapters, um, is the vision of God. So Nahum is just giving exactly what God is showing him. There's no extra in there. Um, the burden is refers to here the burden of the message, regardless of the wickedness of Assyria, there should always be a burden associated with preaching a solemn message of judgment. and I think that's what the burden here is referring to the solemn the solemnness of judgment that's coming and the reason for that is if you if you think about things. I mean the reality of the Assyrians, the reality of the Nazis, the reality of you know, any kind of wicked culture that's in our past, you can always say this about yourself, but for the grace of God, I was there. Right? Because we know depravity is real. We know we're all born into sin, and it is God's common grace that has put us in this time and in this place where we're not in the middle of Assyria. If you're born an Assyrian, you had little choice. That does not not alleviate you from the punishment. That does not alleviate you from sin. But it does make it solemn when we say, Here's the message of God. Here's the message of judgment. And it is a heavy, heavy message because you know if it wasn't for God's grace, you'd be on the other side of that. Right? And, you, and so that's what we see as we see this as a burden. And now look at verse 2, and we're going to spend a little time here in verse 2. He says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. He begins the case against Nineveh. And there's something, I think, to point out here. The message of Jonah. Jonah took the message to Nineveh. What I'm seeing here is, and I'm not entirely sure about this, but it looks to me like this message isn't even given to Nineveh. I think at this point when Nahum is writing this, I think he's writing it to Israel for their comfort that the judgment's going to come on Nineveh. I think Nineveh is past the point of repentance. I think they've been turned over to a reprobate mind at this point. So he begins the case against Nineveh on the certainty of God's unchanging nature. Because of who God is, Nineveh will experience God's wrath. And make no mistake, that comes to everybody. Because of who God is and his character, every sinner will receive God's wrath at some point in time. And so he starts with, God is jealous. And the reason God is jealous, God is jealous that his own honor will be maintained. O. Palmer Robertson said this, he said, Once a person creates in his mind another God, moral disorder inevitably follows. And you think about that. Anytime there is a false God, anytime you get to make up your God, or you're following a God that somebody else has made up, sin, it will follow. Why? Because that's the reason you made the God in the first place. And there are a lot of people, we, we think, well, we don't have false gods here. This We don't have an idolatrous country. There's nobody bowing down to idols. Well, that's absolutely not true. For one thing, we actually have an upswing of many idolatrous religions. Blake mentioned it this morning with uh, Tom Brady. The guy is a Buddhist. He's got a little elephant idol in his locker, or at least he did at one point. I mean, he literally goes to his locker and worships an idol. But more than that, we have an idolatrous country in that we have people, and we have to be careful of this because we've all probably followed it in some way or another, but there are people making a God to fit themselves and calling him the God of the Bible. And that is just as idolatrous as putting a statue up. Anytime you're making a God to fit yourself, and you see this witnessing a lot. Steven's Stephen's done a lot of street witnessing. I promise you he's he's heard this. Somebody at some point says, Well, my God would never do that. And probably anybody that's talked to very many people, well, my God would never send me to hell just because I you know I do this or that or whatever. Well, no, you're right. Your God wouldn't. Because your God doesn't exist. But my God is jealous. And he's jealous for a reason. He's jealous that he keeps his glory. And the reason he's jealous. Now, see, if we're jealous, it's a sin, right? We get envy. We get covetousness. But God doesn't have that because God is actually worthy of glory. He's the only one. If we were worthy of glory, we could be jealous too, but we're not. We are not worthy of glory. God is And so he gets jealous. And anytime somebody starts making up a God in their mind to fit their own needs or to appease their own sins or to try to do what they want or whatever it is, God gets jealous. And he is extremely jealous here in Nineveh. And and that that also goes with this, too. Making the God to fit yourself. We also have an idolizing of material material creation in our culture. And we've all got to watch this. Right? Striving for things. For stuff. For money. Right? We have an obsession with that in our culture. A commercialization um, obsession. And so... When you idolize material creation, then that causes an unending grasping for more. You can can never have enough. That's kind of, again, I'm going back to Blake's, what he was talking about with Tom Brady. Tom Brady had won like three or four or five Super Bowls, and he's going, it's just, there's got to be more out there. Well, he has this hunger for for fame and glory and power, and five Super Bowls isn't enough. You see it all the time with people in salaries like this guy's making a million dollars and he's he's threatening to leave cuz he wants a million one point two. 1.2 you see with in sports it's really bad football coaches it's terrible well that guy's making 8 million i'm only making 7 i'm going to threaten to leave when's enough enough the people that are making that salary possible are barely making it and but they buy tickets. You know, it's just crazy. But once you start feeding that lust of material possessions, it is never ending. You will never get enough. You'll never get enough. You'll never get enough fame. Um, actually, if you turn to James... He says the same thing. James chapter 4. Listen to verse 1 through 3. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's the problem there? If your mind is towards the earthly pleasures, towards material possessions, it's going to cause all kinds of fighting and warring and problems, amongst the, even amongst Christians that's what he's saying. That's what we're saying here. God is jealous of those things. Those things that you place as more important than him, he is jealous. And so God's jealousy is obviously much different than our jealousy. Only complete, dedicated worship of the living God can assure a harmonious balance in the world. In other words, the only way that any aspect of creation... The only way that any aspect of creation can receive their proper due is to give everything to God. To fulfill their role in Christ. A a human can never fulfill their role as a human unless they're glorifying God to do it. You can never fulfill your role as a husband unless you are first glorifying God for who He has created you to be. You can never fulfill your role as a wife or a mother, or in your job. You can't fulfill anywhere God has put you unless you fully glorify Him, unless you give Him the full credit for it. And it's that way with all of creation. And, and that's because only God deserves worship. God's jealousy has the best interest of its creation, of His creation in view. When he when he is jealous, he wants you to fully worship him and fully submit to him because that's how he will best bless you, right? It's 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 not even it's a it's a love for you that this flows through. It's a love for for perfection, and it's because he deserves it. And so, so by being the one and only true God. A zealousness for maintaining his unique role flows out of his very nature. Because he's perfect, because he's holy, because he is God, that's why he's jealous. And it's a perfection that he's, that he has. And it's his nature. He can't change it because it is perfection. And that's what we should be striving for. And then you go on into this verse. So that was one word, jealousy. And then you go on to this verse, he mentions vengeance four times. Read it again. So God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Four different times there, he's going to talk about vengeance. Nahum's not really beating around the bush here. This is verse 2. There's not much of a, there's no pleasantries involved with this on, you know, the salutation. He's going, here's what's going to happen, and here's why. So the vengeance comes out of the jealousy. So God's jealousy characterizes God's attitude towards all rivals, right? God's vengeance describes the action That emerges out of that jealousy. Vengeance can be explained like this. It can be explained by giving each one a just recompense. A just reward for their actions. God will return to the sinner an appropriate repayment for every sin that he has done. Or she has done. That's what vengeance is. It's a just reward for your life. this repayment comes with a righteous indignation disgust and the full wrath of God behind it you notice he says it's furious there is a wrath there is an anger there is a righteous indignation that comes along with this vengeance but it's very very important that we remember this vengeance is reserved for God alone God's people should be jealous of God's glory the zealousness that comes along with that, we should have. We should have jealousies. We should have an indignation when we hear about a famous football player that has a Buddha statue in his locker. Or when we see people that, we, we see this actually a lot more, it's more of a humanistic culture that we're in where people want to worship themselves or they want to worship a system or they want to worship material things, or they do anything that the atheistic mindset to try to put God down, that should cause us to be jealous for our God, right? It should cause a zealousness in us. However, and and we should challenge anyone that tries to rob God of His glory. However, we're called to do it in love, and we're called to leave the vengeance to Him. Now, I've got a few that I'll read, and then we'll turn to one. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Psalm 94, one says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Vengeance belongs to God. Now, turn to Romans We'll see more. Romans chapter 12. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't get to do the vengeance. I know that there's times we really want to. But it's not our job. It's not our lane. It's not our place to do that. And by trying to do that then we would be trying to overthrow, we would be doing the exact thing that we should be getting upset about. We would be robbing God of his glory. Vengeance belongs to him. What are we supposed to do? Read verse 20 there in Romans 12. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat coals of fire on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is not ours. And I'm going to tell you a very important reason why. Because as long as those people are alive, we don't know they're in state. And we go trying to put vengeance on people. They may actually be a chosen son or daughter of God. And he may have plans of repentance for them. And it is not our place. And remember this, we were all in that spot at one time. We were all an enemy with God at one time. And if somebody else would have seen the way I acted before, they would have wanted to put vengeance on me. But it wasn't their place. It was God's place. And rather than putting the vengeance on me, He chose to put it on Christ and He chose to save me. And that's how we have to see everybody else. And we have to remember that. So vengeance belongs to the Lord. But... Make no mistake about this. God will repay the wicked for each one of their wicked deeds. Turn over to Zephaniah. We're going to get into a few little less common books here. Zephaniah is just to the right of Nahum. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, listen to what it says. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of troubles and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. God's judgment when it comes is swift and it's fierce and it has nothing that can stop it. When God unleashes his wrath, it comes in fullness. And so we've got to remember that as well. We know he will not withhold his vengeance forever. We know this for two reasons. One, he told us. And that's enough. We believe His Word. We trust His Word. But secondly, He showed us. He showed us on the cross where His wrath was poured out on His Son. So at the cross, this is always important that we always remember this as Christians. At the cross, we see both God's amazing grace by His punishment falling on Christ. That vengeance that you and I deserved was poured out On Christ, but at the same time, we see his wrath. So we're seeing the wrath poured out as mercy, but we're also seeing the wrath poured out as vengeance simultaneously at the cross. And today, if you are not found in Christ, then you're abiding under the wrath of God. And it leaves you with this question Are you found in Christ? Because it's the only way that you are not an enemy of God. It says He reserves His wrath for His enemies. People don't understand this today. This is not taught today. People think that they are okay with God even if they're not born again, even if they haven't repented, even if they haven't turned their life to Christ. They think, well, God still loves me. No, He doesn't. You're an enemy of God. I'm sorry. I know that goes against everything that you hear all the time from Christians in books, in churches, on TV, everything that you hear. But it's not true. God has enemies. And if you're not in Christ, you're an enemy of God. But there's good news. You do not have to remain His enemy. You can repent. Put your faith in Christ and He will love you with a love that you cannot understand. Those of you that are in Him today, you do understand it. And you understand what I'm saying here. It's incredible. Why? Why does He love me? I have no idea. It's nothing I did. But it's everything Christ did. He loves me because Christ is lovable and Christ has put his blood covering me. That's it. And if you're not under that, then you're you're an enemy of God. Look at verse 3. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. We serve such an amazing God. And with Nineveh, we see both these realities. We see the slow to anger. They were deserving of wrath the first time. When Jonah went and preached to them, trust me, they were just as wicked as what we can imagine. Just as wicked as anything we've ever seen on this in in our life. You go over to the, the Middle East and there's atrocities being committed. These guys were just as bad. They invented ways of torture that we can't even imagine. But yet he was slow to anger, and he was merciful, and he granted them repentance. But now we're going to see the second part of that verse, which is he will not at all acquit the wicked. He will not clear the guilty. As Nahum proclaims, this is quickly becoming a reality for Nineveh. The time of repentance has passed, and God will demonstrate his vengeance On This city the same way he did on Sodom and Gomorrah the same way he did on on the tower at Babylon or Babel The same way he did on the entire earth in the days of Noah He is going to demonstrate it right here in Nineveh on the Assyrians And at that time that would have absolutely looked impossible Nahum probably depending on how their level of belief I'm sure there were people thought oh, yeah This city's going to be destroyed? Okay. How's that going to happen? Because nobody was taken out of Syria. They were by far the most powerful country in the world. They were by far the most feared nation in the world, the most feared people in the world. And they did it on purpose. They did it with those tactics I mentioned earlier. And people would would surrender. There was even... There's some, some sources that would even say people would start committing suicide just so they wouldn't have to risk the torture of the Assyrians. And you're saying that somebody's going to take them, overtake them? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. he's saying that city, Nineveh, in the middle of all of Assyria, the most powerful country in the world, is about to fall. And the reason it is possible is found in between the slow-to-anger and the not acquitting the wicked. Look at that verse. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The great in power. It is incredible. The most powerful men. Men strive for power, right? And it's fleeting. It's always fleeting. You have one guy in charge. He lasts for a while. Look, at, look through the king's. It just go, it's up and down, your power is fleeting. the most powerful men, countries, regimes on this earth they don't even qualify as a pawn in god's economy. why because he can knock he can knock off the whole board anytime he wants. he can crush them with the word of his mouth, and Nineveh was no different and look at the so when we go on into that verse, the lord or And the Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of His feet. He controls the weather. Have have you guys ever... I know when storms come, it's usually devastating and it's not that great to see. But if you will step back and watch that sometimes, it is actually incredible. There's a tree I drive by every day that's uprooted. And that tree... I don't know how big it is, but the, the root ball has got to be 10 foot wide. And a little, this was not a big tornado. This was not, I don't even think it was a tornado. It was just straight line winds, comes through and uproots that tree that has been there for probably 100 years like that. It's incredible to step back and look at a storm. When God, and God is in control of all that. And the only reason it doesn't get worse is because he's restraining He controls the weather. You remember when when Jesus was on the boat and he calmed the storm? And they said, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and seas obey him. I mean, huge trees uprooted. Buildings can be leveled. Cars picked up and dropped off in trees. I remember going up and helping with the tornado up at Bethel afterwards. And the firemen were trying to get a car out of a tree so it wouldn't fall on somebody. But it was probably 10, 15 feet in a tree. Just like nothing. Matter of seconds. And those are very small manifestations of God's power. And Nahum says it's coming to Nineveh and to the rest of Assyria. And so what was extremely bad news to Nineveh was actually good news to Israel. There's hope in the judgment. There's reasons for the judgment. And it was good news to Israel because they were under the horrible oppression of Assyria. Right? They're right to the north of them. They're constantly raiding them. They're constantly many of their friends and family had went through the torture practices that I talked talked about. But the real reason it's good news to Israel is because they weren't under the judgment That Nineveh was. Even though they were guilty of some of the same things. They were guilty of the idolatry throughout the history. But why? God had grace. God had mercy. And so they weren't under that same reality. And so we're going to end here at verse 3. And we're left with two major realities. The first is that God is just and will by no means clear the wicked. And the second is that God is merciful and has provided means of salvation for the wicked through receiving their punishment on the cross. So you think, well, how does... I mean, that's that's a paradox that we have to deal with as Christians. How is it that God can release the wicked? How is there? How is it that there is no way... He does, or or, or that there's no way he clears the wicked, but yet I was wicked. How is he clearing me? And the answer is that somebody received it for me, right? Somebody paid the payment for me, and it had to be somebody that could actually pay the payment. So in other words, I mean, if you go back to the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats would not satisfy the atonement. They couldn't. Why? The blood of bulls and goats wasn't pure and holy. And I can't pay the payment for anybody else. Why? Because I'm wicked too. I can only pay my own payment. How would I pay my own payment? Eternity in hell. That's it. That's the only way I can make a payment. And you can't pay for anybody else's. But somebody that had no payment to pay can pay it for somebody else. And that's why we have Christ. That's where Christ comes in. When he was born, he was born perfect. He wasn't born into sin like you and I were. And he lived a perfect life. So in other words, he fulfilled the law in every point. Not once sinning. And because of his purity then, he can make the payment for somebody else. And that's what he did on the cross. And that's the mercy. But he didn't make it for every single person. No, he made it for those who would believe, for those who will repent and put their faith in him. And there's one very other, very important reality that must be taught here. And that is just because you haven't received punishment yet does not mean that you won't. Because God does withhold his wrath for time. And it's very much a human nature that you get away with something and you think, hey, I got away with it that time. I'll get away with it again. And I'll get away with it again. I'll get away with it again. And that happens over and over and over. And, and that, I think that's what happens to people who understand there's a God. They've been taught correctly that there's a God. They've been taught correctly that there's morals and that there's sin. But they're just going on living their life how they want to because, hey, I've gotten away with it this far. God hasn't struck me down. God hasn't given me any kind of major problems in my life. I'm doing all right. Learn from Nahum. Learn from Nineveh that that will not hold up. At some point, he will unleash his wrath on you. So you have to examine yourself. God sees it. God knows it, and he will avenge it unless you give it to Christ. So my encouragement today is, if you're in Christ, take take great encouragement that you're not abiding under that wrath and you're a friend of God. He loves you and He will do everything to keep you to the point of He will not let you out of His hand. But if you are not in Christ, if you realize, I am under that judgment, I am under... I am abiding in the wrath of God. Then today is the day of salvation. Repent, believe in Christ, and give Him your life. Run to the refuge and avoid the judgment. So that's the start. That's the first three verses of Nahum.